Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, Avi Cooper and Tony Brew. Hey, guys. Hannah, Avi. Hello. Hello. All right. So today's episode is going to be about a drug side effect, one that you probably see more often than you might realize, and that is the fact that heparin, a drug we use to thin the blood, can cause elevated potassium levels or hyperkalemia as a side effect. It's one of those right under our noses things in medicine. So Avi, why heparin and hyperkalemia for this episode? You know, this is one of my favorite pearls to sort of zing out on rounds if no one on the team mentions it. And I, I imagine that both of you have had hospitalized patients that have this sort of simmering, persistent, typically mild hyperkalemia on their labs that you just can't quite explain and it doesn't go away over several days. And you know, you come on service, you look back at the last few days of labs, the patient will have had a potassium level often sort of like 5.5 millimoles per liter every day, but their potassium was normal on admission. So something happened while they were in the hospital. And it's not abnormal to the point that people are, you know, perhaps doing anything about it, but, um, you know, it's there. And the patient's not on spironolactone, they have normal renal function. They just don't seem to have a good explanation for why their serum potassium level is elevated. You know, I, I sort of, I, I'll say to the team, you know, this actually could be a side effect of their their heparin or their um, anoxaparin, which is, you know, low molecular weight heparin, heparin which they're on for um, deep vein thrombosis prophylaxis, for DVT prophylaxis. I'll sometimes get, you know, blank stares, uh, like, what the heck are you talking about? But they're like, the pharmacist will be there nodding and like <laughs> totally agreeing. And it, this is actually a thing. And we'll dive into it you know, on this episode, this association um, between heparin and hyperkalemia. Um, and we'll also along the way explore some, a number of other sort of surprising sort of systemic, maybe what I would call off-target effects that heparin can have outside of anticoagulation and um, hyperkalemia. But have either of you heard of this association? Would you be giving me those blank stares or? I had heard of it, but I have never actually associated it clinically. Yeah, you know, this is one of those. I, I too have taught this as a pearl for a while, but I know that there are have been uh, far more times that I've missed it uh, than that I've that I've that I've noted it because it's one of those things. Just you say, it's like right under your nose. Yeah, no, I, I think it, exactly, and especially when you have these sort of low to mid five potassium levels that like it just it nobody mentions it, but it's there staring you right in the face. <laughs> All right, so so the three of us have noticed it sometime in the last few years, but um, who was the first astute person who was like, zing, here's a clinical pearl I'm going to bring out of rounds tomorrow? Because you know, heparin is one of the oldest medications in continuous use, so I have to imagine that this was seen a long time ago. Yeah, it's been noted for a long time. And you know, heparin is, like you said, Tony, is a really old drug. And it was discovered way back in 1916, actually by a medical student whose name was Jay McLean when he was at Johns Hopkins. And he was studying dog livers and he isolated a fat-soluble glycosaminoglycan anticoagulant. And because it was found in liver tissue originally, he that it was named heparin. Um, acknowledging sort of the, you know the Greek word for liver or hepar, um, but but heparin is actually made naturally all over the body, not just the liver. And interestingly, um, mast cells are the main producers of heparin in the body. And some people actually theorize that they're they're the only producers of heparin in the body are from mast cells. Um, and then it gets released from their secretory granules at the sites of tissue injury. Um, and in terms of the association between heparin and hyper hyperkalemia. 
This was observed in 1964 um, when a patient with recurrent myocardial infarctions uh, received an extended treatment course of heparin over at least several weeks, and he developed uh, subsequently hyperkalemia. And he actually had a peak serum potassium level of 6.4 milliequivalents per liter. Um, and you know the authors they didn't really have a good explanation for it. There there was some some had been some theories that had been sort of circulating about a potential effect around this time, but they all that they knew that the patient's potassium level had risen shortly after starting the medication. So where did the where did the literature go after that initial report? So, you know, there actually have been numerous subsequent case reports and series that have shown this association, both with unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin. Um, the exact incidence isn't really known, I don't think, but there, I saw a lit review from 1995 in the American Journal of Medicine that estimated the incidence of mild hyperkalemia with heparin exposure is about 7%. And it seems like severe hyperkalemia, um, to get that, it would really sort of require an a second hit, like another factor being present as well, like other medications that raise the potassium or renal dysfunction, something like that. But you know, we do see a similar picture with low molecular weight heparin exposure as well. There was a small prospective study from 2011 in the Journal of Pharmacology and Pharmacotherapeutics that found that about 9% of patients treated with low molecular weight heparin did develop mild hyperkalemia. The main risk factor there was um, impaired renal function. So it seems to be a real thing. Uh, you know, nearing like 10%. Is I don't know. I would say that's enormous because the number of patients that we take care of in the hospital who are on either uh, sub Q heparin or anoxaparin for prophylaxis. I mean, this is this is a lot of people, um, and I think this there does seem to be a legitimate link between that drug and this effect, even if it only causes mild hyperkalemia. So you know, I think we're interested to hear a little bit more about the mechanism here, and like because I wouldn't otherwise associate this drug with this. Uh, side effect. One clue is that heparin actually fairly reliably reduces adrenal aldosterone production. And this was first observed in rats in the 1960s, around the same time of that first case report. Um, and there were actually clinical studies that had suggested this effect in aldosterone production um, even back in the 1950s. And so there was an experiment in the journal Endocrinology in 1964 that they found that incubating heparin with rat adrenal gland cells led to a decrease in aldosterone production. So the heparin with the adrenal cells, they sort of stopped making aldosterone. And they saw a similar effect when they gave the heparin to live rats. So in both experiments, the decrease in aldosterone was actually selective, meaning that the rat's adrenal glands only decreased production of aldosterone after heparin exposure, but they continued to produce, say, cortisol at normal levels. So can we break down why decreasing aldosterone level production could lead to hyperkalemia? Yes, we can. And you know that it takes we have to go back to physiology a little bit and review that you know aldosterone is a hormone that's secreted by the adrenal cortex and it activates the ENAC channel and the basolateral sodium potassium ATPase pump in the distal nephron. And both of these actions lead to excretion of potassium. So if you decrease aldosterone production from the adrenal glands, you would increase potassium levels. And aldosterone also stimulates proton secretion in the collecting ducts. So decreased aldosterone activity leads to a renal tubular acidosis known as a type 4 renal tubular acidosis. Okay. So that's sort of a nice reminder of why anything that suppresses aldosterone might lead to hyperkalemia. And I think before that, you offered us some um, evidence from rats of this sort of effect of heparin on aldosterone. 
I guess the next question would be, is there any evidence of this inhibition in humans? Yeah, you know, clinical studies in humans, they've shown the same effect, actually. And there was a study from 1983 in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism that found an approximately 50% reduction in aldosterone levels during treatment with therapeutic or anticoagulant doses of heparin. And a subsequent smaller study from 1986 in the American Journal of Nephrology found a similar reduction in aldosterone production during treatment, even with you know low doses of heparin that we use for deep vein thrombosis prevention in hospitalized patients, which we know are significantly lower doses, but they found a similar effect on aldosterone. That is so incredible and so interesting that it's not that dose dependent, because you know we also think about people who are getting these massive like mega doses in cardiac surgery, and you know it's really interesting that the effect is not dose dependent. So we talked about heparin's ability to reduce aldosterone production. Now this is like assuming that everybody in these studies have otherwise a normal level of aldosterone. But what about, for example, people with primary or another cause to have hyperaldosteronism, so that the aldosterone level is high to begin with? I was shocked to learn that heparin or heparin analogs seem to be able to suppress aldosterone production even in someone with hyperaldosteronism who otherwise would be sort of just pumping out aldosterone. And there was a case series from 1966 in the Canadian Medical Association Journal that reported the results of giving N-formal chitosan, polysulfuric acid, which is an analog of heparin that has sort of less anticoagulant effects apparently. Um, and they, they gave it, these, uh, these uh, authors gave it to two patients with primary hyperaldosteronism and associated hypertension. And I think they were trying to like treat it. <laughs> and they found that within two weeks, the heparin analog led to a more than five-fold reduction in aldosterone levels in the blood, all the way to the point that they couldn't even detect aldosterone in the in the blood at all in these patients who, again, previously were hy- clinically hyper, um, al- you know, had clinical hyperaldosteronism. So again, at the same time, their hypertension improved, their and um, perhaps not surprisingly, their potassium levels rose with the treatment. So I, I thought pretty impressive stuff. Sorry, I, I, fifth agent for hypertension. Yes. <laughs> I feel like you've you've kind of demonstrated to us that the 1960s were the golden age of uh, heparin. Uh, hyperkalemia, aldosterone studies. I it mean, was a very oh, fertile time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a time to be alive. Um, okay. So, so I think you established that heparin can cause hyperkalemia. I mean, it's certainly associated. And I think mechanistically, you know, you're, you're getting us there uh, via the decreased production of aldosterone from the adrenal glands. But can you take us a little bit of a step further and like talk about why heparin might do this? Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a really important question. And it's it requires us to do some more physiology review. Yes, um, so I can't and we'll wait. yeah, it, we'll do it quickly. We'll do it really quickly. Um, well, we have to review the renin angiotensin aldosterone system, which mediates and controls aldosterone production. So aldosterone is made from the zona glomerulosa of the adrenal gland, and its production is stimulated primarily by a hormone called angiotensin two. Um, in addition to some stimulation by adrenocorticotropin hormone or ACTH, but it's mainly angiotensin II. So you need angiotensin II around to stimulate the adrenal glands to make aldosterone. And it turns out that heparin directly blocks the effects of angiotensin II at the level of the zona glomerulosa cells in the adrenal gland, which was studied, uh, which was demonstrated in rats in a study from the Journal of Steroid Biochemistry um, in 1986. Um, so if angiotensin II can't act on the zona glomerulosa cells, 
they won't be able to make aldosterone. So very interesting and very exciting. But how how does heparin affect that? So I think this is less well understood, um, but I came across two potential explanations for this heparin effect, you know, how it can block angiotensin-induced aldosterone production. The first, and this is probably the more well-established one, is that uh, heparin directly decreases angiotensin II receptor expression on cells of the adrenal zona glomerulosa, so or at least it does in rats. So this was from a study in 1988 that demonstrated this. The, the second is, is more theoretical, but it's certainly plausible. So there's evidence from mice that heparin actually blocks angiotensin II-mediated intracellular signaling within vascular endothelial cells independent of receptor blockade. And it essentially disrupted intracellular signaling kinase pathways, which would certainly inhibit angiotensin II's impact on target cells. Now, I couldn't find any studies looking at whether heparin also has this effect intracellularly on adrenal cells. But you know, if it did, this would be a second mechanism by which heparin would block the effects of angiotensin II and decrease aldosterone production. But you know, can either of you think of a potential hemodynamic impact that this might have, um, especially when we talk about the vasculature. Yeah, so kind of joking about it earlier, but I guess I guess you could, in that situation of these like mega doses, see hypotension. I imagine. Yes, exactly. And this was an association that I wasn't really aware of before diving into this topic, probably because I don't spend a lot of time in like cardiac ORs. But apparently, uh, heparin has vasodilatory properties, and hypotension is a known potential side effect, particularly when heparin is bolused in situations like the operating room for cardiac surgery or in the cardiac cath lab. And it makes sense if heparin is sort of an angiotensin receptor blocker or inhibitor that it could potentially cause vasodilation and hypotension when given in high doses. Although, you know, there are probably multiple mechanisms for that hemodynamic effect. There are other sort of proposed mechanisms like an ability to increase histamine and that um, heparin can sort of increase the production of endothelial nitric oxide release and uh, seems to also um, affect sort of calcium binding too. So there's probably a number of potential effects, but um, it seems like blood pressure is, you know, hypotension is one of them when given in high doses. Yeah, another reason to keep me out of the, the cardiothoracic surgery operating room, because I'll be like, did you know, guys, that the heparin you're administering, they had to be like, all right, please, can, internal medicine guy, can you please step out of the OR? Um, because the, I'll be honest, this is like shockingly surprising. I, I was not go, I was not expecting us to necessarily go down the right of hypotension from heparin other than um, uh, potentially shock from blood loss. It seems like there's these all these off-target effects of heparin, you know, whether it's the hyperkalemia, and now you're telling about the sort of the vasodilation. I sense that there's even more. There's got there's there's more coming. Yeah, and I think your your phraseology there, the off-target effects. I mean that that's what this is. And um, there was one more equally, perhaps even more for me, surprising effect of heparin that I really doubt most people realize is going on when they prescribe heparin for a patient. Um, I certainly didn't um, realize this, is that heparin seems to have diuretic effects as well. What? Of course it does. Yeah, I was absolutely shocked when I learned this, but it actually makes sense based on the mechanisms we've been discussing. So if you recall how aldosterone acts on the distal nephron, 
which um, we've focused on excretion of potassium, but it also causes retention of sodium. Heparin's ability to block aldosterone production leads to retention of potassium, as we've learned. And not surprisingly, it'll also lead to increased sodium excretion. So, uh, or natriuresis. So, more sodium in the urine means more production of urine, and that means diuresis. So, heparin was spironolactone before spironolactone was spironolactone, because what sounds like you're describing is a potassium sparing diuretic. You know, it sort of is, you know, though indirectly as opposed to say something like spironolactone, but, you know, heparin is blocking aldosterone production, right? I mean, it is what it's doing. Um, it's not having a direct action on the kidney necessarily, um, but by blocking aldosterone production, it's having the same effect. All right. So how much how much am I going to get out of this diuretic here? <laughs> Sir, do we have any clinical data? It's all, not surprisingly, from that very rich time of the 1960s. God, um, of course. But this seems to As be- As opposed to the IV furosemide shortage of 2012. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, this seems to be a true effect. You know, remember that in the early 1960s, there weren't a lot of great diuretic options available. Furosemide was still in development, and I think that came out in the mid-1960s. So a case series from 1960 reported the results of using heparin deliberately as a diuretic in 29 hypervolemic patients. And they were hypervolemic from various causes. And amazingly, Almost all of the patients in this study achieved diuresis while on heparin. They had increased urine output. They had increased urinary sodium excretion. Most of the patients had improvements in their body weight and peripheral edema. And they highlighted one patient in the study um, who had anasarca from nephrotic syndrome, and they lost eight kilograms of body weight over a five-week treatment, of course, with intravenous heparin. That's a long time to achieve that effect, but heparin seems to have been able to, to do it. And though the, the patient's treatment course um, was interrupted, it seemed like twice for bleeding complications, um, hemoptysis and hematuria, over those several weeks, they did diurese effectively. I'm just imagining that poor intern having to check PTTs every few hours for weeks and weeks and weeks as this patient is being diuresed with IV heparin. Um, (laughs) That's a lot of PTTs. Now, I I have to imagine that the reason heparin didn't catch on as our sort of potassium-sparing diuretic is that other ones emerged and the bleeding risk. Is, Is that kind of what happened? Yeah, I, I'm guessing that those two reasons are the the are, are why you know <laughs> the this sort of research agenda was uh, interrupted and stopped. <laughs> you know why we don't have more uh, robust evidence for the diuretic effects of heparin. Um, one, like you said, you know, furosemide arrived on the market in the mid 1960s. It's a much more effective diuretic, um, and uh, it doesn't cause bleeding. It's not an anticoagulant. So I think there probably just wasn't a need for this anymore once furosemide arrived, and then other, you know, other loop diuretics and such that came along, other classes of diuretics as well. But the reality is, when we're giving people heparin, we're giving a bit, sort of a weak potassium sparing. It reminds me a little bit of the discussion we had in episode two, where we we talked about the hypercoagulable state of cancer and the randomized trials from the 70s of giving warfarin as a treatment for cancer. And there there was a mortality benefit in in one series of patients who had small cell lung cancer. And, you know, like, oh, well, why aren't we using warfarin in 2022? Well, we have better treatment options and bleeding is we tr- we try to avoid that sort of a similar story here, right? This just because it works doesn't mean that it's the best option available to us. Tony, I totally agree, and I, that also reminds me of episode ten 
when we talked about metronidazole and its um, effects on brain radiation and sort of sensitizing to that. And then it just, at a certain point, the treatments got good enough that we didn't need that anymore, it seemed like. And so same same idea. Yeah. Although very elegant for the idea of like nephrotic syndrome is a hypercoagulable state. Um, oh my but God, yes, that's brilliant. You're right. I hadn't even thought about that. That's brilliant. But yeah, no, the classical way that I think about losing fluid from heparin is a, a slightly different mechanism. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I wonder actually if it evens out to the amount of carrier IV fluid that are in modern heparin protocols, like if it helps almost like balance out the amount that, of fluid that we give someone when they're on a drip continuously with heparin. Oh, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought of that either. Well, we're we're gonna have this is gonna have to be a prospective study because we're gonna need a lot of data, but we'll oh, yeah. put it in the bank of studies. But again, these do. the studies were showing the effects on aldosterone even at the lower doses for prophylaxis, right? Which are subcutaneous. So it's true. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, this one has been so fascinating and something that I feel like I'm gonna really look for in my daily life. Do you have take home points for us, Avi? Yeah, you know, when you administer heparin products, whether that be you know, heparin drip or subcutaneous heparin for DVT prophylaxis or low molecular weight heparin, you're also administering a drug that has lots of off-target effects. We focused mostly on its ability to cause hyperkalemia, which is usually mild, um, as well as vasodilation, particularly when bolused, and also having a potassium-sparing diuretic effect. And the main mechanisms we discussed were heparin um, that can decrease adrenal angiotensin II receptor expression, and there may be a role for inhibiting intracellular signaling from the angiotensin II receptor, all of which conspires to decrease aldosterone production and have all of these off-target effects. You aced it. All right. This wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks as always for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We continue to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash Curious Clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been The Curious Clinicians. Thank you.